From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, but the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. This is the word of the Lord. Many years ago, when I was one of the ministers of the First United Methodist Church in Houston, Gail and I went through a seminar based on the work of Dr. Roger Berkman. For 50 years now, Dr. Berkman has tried to convince greater numbers of people that there are four primary personality types in the world. He calls them thinkers, counters, doers, talkers. It isn't nearly that simple, however, because a person may be 80% thinker and 2%, uh, 20% counter, or maybe an 80% doer and a 20% talker or something else. But in the printouts one received after taking a long battery of tests, uh, Dr. Berkman shows that for every different personality, there are strengths to that personality type and weaknesses to that personality type. And that when our needs are being met, we function at the tops of our pages. And when everyone's functioning at the tops of their pages, we're all doing well. When our needs are not being met, we move to the negative side of that personality. And we all are not doing well at all. After all these years, Gail and I will be in situations where one will turn to the other and say, Oh no, everybody's moving to the bottom of their pages. When it's too hot, people are tired, they haven't had enough sleep, they haven't eaten or haven't eaten what they want to eat, we move to the bottom of the pages. So when I read this text, I could see the Israelites have moved to the bottoms of their pages. They are not at their best, they are at their worst. Let's take a look at this story. First off, they complained. Now, the Tanakh, the rabbi's translation of this text says, the people became restive and began to complain. Everett Fox, in his translation of these books of the Torah, says the people became short-tempered and complained. But all of them have some form of this word complain, complain. Dr. Thomas Dozman says that there are a series of stories here in the scroll of Numbers about the murmurings of the people, the complainings of the people, and this is the very last one and God's harshest judgment against that. Just this week I was looking at my new Newsweek magazine. There was an article about a pastor in Kansas City, Missouri. His name is Will Bowen. Will pastors a small church, about 280 members, according to this article. But 18 months ago, he suddenly realized that he was murmuring a lot, and the members of his church were murmuring a lot. There were more instances of complaining that was just drawing the life out of his church. 
So he started thinking, how might he deal with that? And discovered that right now there are several different organizations that are making little rubber bracelets to commemorate one thing or another. So he ordered purple rubber bracelets, enough for all the members of his congregation, passed them out one Sunday morning at worship and said, I'm asking you to join with me. Put this rubber bracelet around one of your wrists and see if you can go 21 days without complaining. He said he had read somewhere that if a person can change his or her behavior for 21 days, you've got a chance of this being a significant change. So he said, 21 days. If you find that you've complained about something, take the bracelet off that wrist, transfer it to the other, mark the calendar, and begin again. Now, Will Bowen says it took him three months to string together 21 days. And it took a lot of his congregation members longer than that, but gradually they began to get the hang of it. Now, this attracted enough attention in the Kansas City area that Today Show heard about it and invited him to New York to tell his story. Oprah Winfrey Scouts heard about it and invited him on to her show. His little congregation has now mailed out more than five million of these little purple bracelets to people across the country. Why do you think? Because we're all sick of complainers. We're all sick of complainers. The only problem is we sort of enjoy complaining ourselves. <laughs> Here, this ancient writer is saying, complaining doesn't help anybody or anything. Even if it should get you a temporary reprieve and something you would like to have, the person who has to give in is not happy about that. So the complaining does not bring the desired result. Number two, certainly didn't in this story. God was sick of all that complaining, and so he let serpents start biting the people. Now, even the rabbis have trouble with this story. God let serpents start biting the people. I read Dr. Nahum Sarna, a noted rabbi's commentary. I read uh, Rabbi Gunter Plout this week in his commentary. And both of them say, you have to remember that in many ancient cultures, the serpent was considered demonic. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Who creates the first problems? A talking snake. Remember Dr. Carl Sagan's book, The Dragons of Eden? In his book, he said, he believes that we humans have come from the old reptilian age of life on the planet, that we still have a portion of that reptilian brain in us, that when the mammalian brain finally was developed, it has forever then been in, in a struggle, if you would, for a, a battle, a war against the old reptilian brain. Carl Sagan had several examples of why he thought this was true. You might remember the young men who climbed up in the tower at the University of Texas many years ago now and started shooting at students and faculty down below, killing a number of them before uh, authorities rushed the tower and killed him. They found a little note on him that said he didn't understand what he was doing. He was an Eagle Scout, a Sunday school teacher, a devoted husband and father. Yet he'd begun his day by killing his wife, going over killing his mother, and now was shooting all these people whom he did not even know on the campus of the University of Texas. Dr. Carl Sagan says an autopsy revealed that this young man had a tumor on the part of the brain he called the old reptilian brain. 
and that that old alligator, that old snake within him, had suddenly pushed the mammalian brain out of the way. Well, the rabbi sort of come at it from that direction. Uh, maybe this is an ancient story because an ancient folk, though not realizing exactly what was going on within them, they still saw this old reptile as being something that had to be put aside or it would bring great pain, inflict great suffering. Um, Dr. Sue Monk Kidd has written a book a couple of years ago now called First Light. I've read her devotional writings for years. Uh, she finally decided to put some together in a book uh, chronicling her first awakenings to what it really meant to be a child of God and a Christian. Uh, one of those things she recalls early on in her young adult life was going to see the movie Gandhi with Ben Kingsley, you remember. And she said there's one scene in there that she's never been able to get out of her mind. Gandhi had the idea that maybe he could find at least a small group of people in India who would found a new community. And in this new community, they would not have various castes, uh, some being treated better than others, some with more money, more food, better housing, and others. But, but in this community, he was going to try to found work would be assigned equal for all and reward for all. Everything was going along pretty well until he posted the work schedule and his own wife discovered she had been assigned to rake and cover the latrine. And she said, no, no, I'm not raking and covering the latrine. This is for the untouchables, that lowest caste system in India. And Gandhi became very upset and said, well, you will. You will take a turn like all the rest. All of us will work and all of us will be rewarded for our hard work. And she said she would not. This was work for the untouchables. And he lost his temper and pushed her out the door and screamed, go then. You don't belong here. And by the time she had started down the street, he realized he had made a horrible mistake. And he went running after her. And when he caught up to her, he said, please, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, I've never done that before. And I promise I would never, ever push you again, ever. I love you better than my own life. Please come back. Please. He reached out his arms and she let him embrace her. And he squeezed her closer and closer to him. And then he said once more, please, come back home. And she said, I'll be there soon, as soon as I can rake and cover the latrine. Um, the judgment that comes because of our self-centeredness rather than other-centeredness. In this case, the Israelites are questioning God. Number three. Uh, the people realize we have sinned. Dr. Schubert Ogden was one of my favorite uh, professors at Perkins School of Theology at SMU. And Dr. Ogden used to say that sin is unfaith. That's the way he preferred to say it. It's unfaith. That first humans were placed in a beautiful place and told that everything here was a gift of God except for one tree. One tree they did not need. In fact, it could be very harmful. If they ate from it, they would die. And then this talking snake came along 
and said to them, I, I can't imagine why God said that to you. The truth is, if you eat from that tree, you will live as long as God and be as wise as God. And they picked and ate. Dr. Ogden said, though, we equate the picking and eating as being the sin. The sin was unfaith. They didn't trust God. They trusted the snake. And that whenever we have unfaith, we may pick a forbidden fruit on one page, and on the very next page, we have a brother murdering his brother and covering him over in the field. That sin is really serious. And the problem with all this murmuring and complaining is that they've decided God is not good, God does not care, God is not present. I was reading recently in the Wall Street Journal a story about one of our chaplains in the United States Navy, uh, Father Daniel Mode. He's a Roman Catholic chaplain, and he is now stationed on the USS Harry Truman. It's a carrier. So that's not such bad duty. But when one is chaplain in the United States Navy, one also is chaplain to United States Marines. Some of you remember when Marv Lawson came to us as a minister on our, our team here. Marv had retired after more than 20 years as a U.S. Navy chaplain. Part of the time he was on a big ship and ate pretty well, slept pretty well. But other times he was with the Marines in Vietnam. Well, that's the experience that Father Daniel Mode has had. Now he's on a big carrier, but for 20 months he was with the Marines in Afghanistan. And he has described how hot one of those Humvees can be when it's 112 degrees outside and how cold it can be in the dead of winter in some parts of Afghanistan. That he said, my, my role model as a young Italian-American Roman Catholic priest from the Vietnam War era. His name, Vincent Capadona. Vincent Capadona was United States Navy chaplain and then had his tour of duty with the Marines in Vietnam. He was in the Quezon Valley one miserably hot and steamy afternoon when suddenly they were surrounded by Viet Cong. Uh, extreme rifle power. Uh, man after man was falling. One of the Marines who was injured that day but survived said that as he sort of blurred in and out of consciousness, he could see Father Capadona running from Marine to Marine to Marine. He said, finally, when he ran over to me, I could see that he had been hit in one of his hands in his other arm. There was blood running down, his own blood. But I'll never forget what he said to me just before he ran to the next Marine and was gunned down and died. He leaned over me and said, Be calm, Marine. Help is on the way. And the best news of all is that God is with us this afternoon. Faith? Unfaith. Is God there on just the best days of your life? Is God there with you on the worst days of your life? Number four. Strange, isn't it, that serpents in many ancient cultures were a symbol of death and the demonic, and in other cultures they became symbols of healing. In Greek mythology, Asclepius takes the form of a snake. 
And our modern medical symbol here in this United States are two snakes intertwined. Death, demonic, health, and healing. And here Moses is told to fashion a snake. Some ancient translators say copper, some say bronze. Fashion this snake and put it on a long pole and lift it high above the people's heads. And any who are bitten and will raise their eyes to the serpent will live. When John wrote his gospel, he told us in the third chapter that there was a conversation one night between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus wanted to know about this kingdom Jesus was talking about. Tell me about that kingdom. And Jesus said, to get into this kingdom, you have to be born again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that you may have everlasting life. That suffering servant king, the one who rode the burro, not the stallion, that one, if he is lifted up, then things get better. We have life, we have life abundant, life everlasting. I received a story in the mail recently written by Frank Cornfield. Frank says that late one afternoon he was riding a commuter train from Washington, D.C. up to Philadelphia. It had been a long day and he was really tired, but suddenly the man next to him spoke to him and he spoke back. And as we do here in America, we get quickly to, well, what do you do for a living? And the man next to Frank had been in the U.S. Diplomat Corps in India and then felt that he wanted to come home again to Washington, D.C. and to work with troubled teenagers, those in serious trouble. He didn't realize just how serious a teenagers he would be in charge of, but it happened that finally he was in charge of a detention center where virtually every teenager there had already murdered somebody. And he told Frank about one little 14-year-old who had no family, who was living on the streets of Washington, D.C., garbage can to garbage can, decided that maybe he could have family by getting into one of the gangs, was given a pistol by one of the gang members to prove himself to the gang, and he shot down another teenager whom he had never seen in his life, an innocent bystanding teenager, killed him. There was a trial. He was found guilty. And as he was sentenced to this detention center, the mother of the victim stood up from just behind the lawyer's table, pointed her finger straight toward him and said, and I will kill you. He was taken away. Six months later, she showed up at the detention center and asked if she could see this young man. They escorted her there and watched, though they could not hear what she said to him. She visited a few minutes with him, the first visitor he had had in his six months of incarceration. She came back the next week and the next. She started bringing little presents to him, just little inexpensive gifts, and visiting with him week after week. Three years passed. It was time for him to be released from juvenile detention center. He needed a place to go. 
he needed to be able to show that he had some stability in his life. And she volunteered that he could stay in a guest room at her house. And that she had arranged for a job for him with one of her friends there in Washington, D.C. He was released into her oversight. Eight months later, one night when he got home from work, she went into the living room and asked, Remember what I said to you in that courtroom that day? And he said, I can never forget it. She said, Neither have I. But I believe we have killed that murderous young man who was in the courtroom that day. I have no son now, and you have no mother. Would you like to come and live with me? And he nodded his head. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that all who see may have everlasting 